a major kind of turning point for me really was it <laughs> um in uh an early relationship in my life my mid-20s I was what 25 and um I was dating this woman who I you know you couldn't tell me I was not gonna marry this woman um I ain't married now so clearly that ain't what happened <laughs> right um but what but what I learned from it was and this was in a, in a time in my life where I think I had a particular devotion to piety and to certain kinds of performance of religiously righteous living and expression. And so I believed I was doing all the right things. And if I do all the right things, then I'll be rewarded with this relationship that I really want. Because exactly because the because the whole point of this is i mean well you know you're a man and if you're dating like you need to be dating and get married and so it was just everything was just kind of like boom identify quickly like mm, could this be the one is that the one like is this how it works and that all of that like imploded um and she broke up with me and i was i felt totally like emotionally blindsided i was like oh my gosh what just happened um but in the wake of that i realized like oh you know what part of why this hurt was because it was also fracture. It was fracturing, not just your sort of romantic feelings about this person, but also fracturing your perspective of how the world is organized and structured. Like it, what you thought is how things work is not how they work. So now what do you want to do about that? And, uh, and I mean, that, that ended up being like the thing that, I had been thinking about going to uh, going back to school and uh, studying religion. Um, but like that was the that was this sort of like tipping point for me where it was like, well, OK, the world that you thought is is not in the things you had planned for that world are unraveling. What do you actually want to do? And I said, you know, what, I want to go back to school and study. So I ended up applying to divinity school, getting in and like realizing, oh, wait. I want to like study this stuff more. I actually want to be a professor. I want to build a career in academia. And so these kind of like seemingly unrelated moments is like, okay, you know, the fall, falling apart of a romantic relationship becomes a turning point for like my now career tra trajectory. It was like, yo, this, this is just the way like stuff happens. Um, and, and it's funny, like I can only understand that in retrospect. Yeah. Um, and what it reminds me is that in many ways, we're all constructing kinds of origin stories for the way things are. We're um, constructing uh, what, you know, the, the technical term would be uh, etiology. Um, essentially, like the sort of story of how a thing gets started, how a thing uh, comes into existence. And so for all of us, you know, we're born into this world that we're, we're told about how things are happening and how stuff came about. We're given a narrative, we're given a story. And in the midst of it, in living, we, you know, we might double down on that story. We might say like, mm, this ain't really it. Um, and, and in some ways that those points of, mm, this ain't really it, are the real, for me, have been the points of unlearning, the points of inflection that started me off on the path to say, hey, let's dig deeper, let's ask some questions about what we're seeing. And, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll say this and, and sit back for a sec. I realized that as a kid, I had an innate and intuitive sense of this questioning, but I was socialized out of it. Yeah. <laughs> because I understood, I came to understand that like when adults tell you they want you to tell the truth, 
What they really mean is they want you to be honest, but they don't want you to always say all the true things all the time. They want you to communicate what it is they want you to be saying. They don't want you necessarily to question what they may not be ready or willing or able to explain. And now as an adult, I have more sympathy for how that was working and what's happening behind that. Uh, you know, as we, you know, dealing with little kids and like realizing like, okay, I want to tell you the truth. And also the truth is layered and complex and might leave you with many more questions, which I may not have the time or energy or desire to answer right now. But, um, but keeping all of that in mind, I'm like, okay, <laughs> when, when I look at, when I look at people like my nephew, I, I ask myself, what are the ways that I can open up space for him and for his questions, for his curiosity. Like, can I be through my learn, my learning and unlearning a person who is safe space for him to say, hey, what about this? Like, and I, and that's, and I realized that's who I want to be for people. I think that um, you, you, you pointed out just this idea of looking at the way that we even structure the world for uh, those who are coming after us, right? Yep. And if we're going to look at this whole process of unlearning, so if somebody is feeling, you know, maybe with their heels dug in on some of the things that they believe, but a little bit open, if you're, if you're listening to this, hopefully you are somewhat open to the idea of, um, challenging some of your thinking, um, at least trying to get to the bottom of, you know, some of the tensions that you may be experiencing uh, in your life. I think that it really starts with this idea of identifying whether you are devoted to actual love and relationship with the folks that you are in relationship with, um, or to just keeping up this set of rules that you were taught. And mm -hmm. the problem I will identify with, um, with these rules is that there's, there's always gonna be some kind of situation that is going to bring some tension with the rules that we were taught. And when we start to really think and unpack um, these you know, regulations, we get mm -hmm. ourselves to the place of realizing that we don't even know how these things in many cases came to be. And if we start digging, then it asks, it forces us to ask different questions. So even as we talk about, you know, sex and sexuality um, and how in a Christian context, we were taught about this idea of piety. In my own lived experience, Mm -hmm. And and just as a lay person, I mean, I've taught a couple Sunday school classes, but you know, a lay person nonetheless, right? Yep. Um, my understanding of the rules that we were taught today kind of operates more in a way where I've realized that these things were structured to control women, yep. not necessarily put in place to make men adhere. Mm -hmm. And so, even and I, I'm I I say this as my opinion in this moment, right? Uh, yeah. That can change, right? Because I am on a journey and this is not just a destination point. This wasn't where I was five years ago. 
Yeah. It may not be where I am five years from now. But today, I don't think that those rules were designed for men in a Christian context. And part of the reason why I don't think that is that when I looked for examples mm -hmm. of folks who were living it out, yep. there were almost none. And I don't say that as a, uh, a rebuke to anyone who was trying to teach me those rules because I don't assume that they were teaching them to hurt me or to even uphold this kind of structure that was meant to oppress someone else. Yep. Many of us accepted it because that's what we were taught was right. And we could conceive of some manner of thinking that would reinforce it. Mm -hmm. But today I can think of a lot of examples where it just doesn't fit. And that tension is one that instead of shying away from and just doubling down on the rules, I would rather think of the people that need to be loved that in the Christian context, I was taught to love yep. and apply the love ethic rather than getting into this space of trying to apply a rule to somebody and measure them by it. And I think all of us would do well to be willing to reevaluate. And so if we're gonna talk about, you know, how do you go about, you know, preparing yourself for unlearning or getting yourself into a space where you can start to um, not only identify your inflection point, but lean into it. Mm -hmm. it's, it starts with dealing with your ego around being right and around your rules being the correct rules. And I would say it also uh, matters that you would um, deal with your devotion to those rules and be willing to hear and think about other ways of thinking that are not necessarily your own and to treat your own thoughts as good because you've thought of them and these are the things that you believe but not unassailable not mm -hmm. perfect because as we grow and learn i mean if you we we we've done phds and what both of us learned probably in that process is that there's more than we could ever there's more to learn than we could ever possibly know. And the deeper that you dig into something, the more questions it creates. And so this idea that we're going to, going to arrive in a place where we'll just have all the answers is wrong. And we have to be willing to be malleable, to take in new information and be like, oh, well, maybe this thing that I thought before is not exactly it. Yeah, all of that. You you remind me in in your conversation on our devotion to these rules that in so many ways, you know, the rule the rules exist as this kind of social prescription. But what I've also come to understand is that every home, every household is its own country. And when you look at the way, even even folks, right, like who who will, will will theorize, you know, the ways that our morals and ethics ought to to function, the ways that our different social roles ought to be organized, folks ultimately are gonna do what they want to do, what they can negotiate in the space 
that is theirs. And, 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 I, and I think too, so what, what I'm reminded of is right, is like, even when these rules are prescriptive, they're also not reflective of the substantive reality of all people. Like you ultimately do not get what you deserve. You get what you can negotiate. And for, for many of us, you know, or I would say for everyone in some respect, you know, our lives center on a measure of negotiation. Like we're, we're maneuvering around like what these rules say we ought to be doing or what we have to do. Um, even let, let's even take, and, and, and when you start to, to recognize the intersections and entanglements between um, whether it's, you know, your religious ideologies, your political orientations, your social practices and beliefs, you start to realize, okay, all of, the, all of this stuff is like tangled up in some really interesting ways. So I'll give a prime example. I'm reading um, this, uh, this book, excellent, excellent titles called Jesus and John Wayne, how, uh, White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation by Kristen Cobes Demez. Um, absolutely amazing book. Um, one, one of the things that um, Demez, Demez writes about here is that this relationship uh, between how evangelicals linked political power and social practices. So for instance, the idea of the nuclear family and the idea, you know, the, you know, husband, wife, you know, 2.5 kids, a dog, that kind of thing. Um, and even the idea that in this traditional structure, the man ought to be the primary breadwinner. Um, this was a relatively recent invention. Folks will talk a lot about our notions of, you know, men's and women's roles and who ought to be providing, who ought to be taking care of the household. And these sort of ideas are just assumed as, oh, well, you know, it's just kind of how we're biologically suited or how we're socially suited. Like, this is what we're created to do. or This is how things are supposed to be. And it's like, actually, when you look at, <laughs> um, you know, practice, at least, you know, just even looking at the United States, like the nuclear family um, structured around a male breadwinner was like a recent thing, right? Like, this is like 1920s when this becomes a more prevalent practice and it hits its peak in like the 50s and 60s and so many times when we think about like folks who are holding on to these strict ideas around what who men and women ought to be and how they ought to function it's like okay you're actually holding on to particular ideas that are also grounded in a certain time and context that we no longer live in and there was a time before these practices were thought of as the common thing so like before before the time this this sort of like peak from like 1920s to like 1960s where man the man is the the you know man brings home the bacon man is head of the household nuclear family all of that jazz the more common arrangement was multi-generational families benefiting from the economic um gain of multiple contributors so even a lot of the way we like structure our lives and think about how we ought to be is really about a kind of hyper individual status and a removal of communal relationships. And so even like adhering to these rules buys into this idea that we are meant to be or are intended for uh, standing alone, being, you know, being our own people, being hyper independent in ways that aren't reflective of how human life has most 
generally flourished, which is in interdependent community. You know, so I'm just, it's a reminder for me that these these rules are all, at some point somebody decided upon rules, somebody created them, and somebody had an interest in this in this case in the text I'm reading, like these particular white evangelicals were invested in the idea of how can we socially reflect a theological belief that men are the head and men ought to be in charge in these ways. And when I think about how many of the folk, you know, we call friends and family and such, right? Like buy into these ideals and ideas as if they're self-evident, as if they're, this is just the way things have always been. I'm like, yo, this is, this is how it is in so many facets of life. And this is just one example. So, so much of that, that work, like, like you said, once you get into really questioning what's going on here and who is this meant for? Cause I'm like the same folks who will preach and espouse this stuff be out here wilding, doing whatever. Like, and just, I, I don't have to judge you to say that. Like I, this is just a, the reality of the situation, right? You, we, we've seen it, you've seen it. Yeah. I'm like, man, you know, I've known too many, I've known too many, uh, too many ministers with secret kids. <laughs> I've known too many folk with like all kinds of interesting proclivities and kinks and whatever. And listen, like what you like, but <laughs> when you, when the left hand don't know what the right hand is doing, <laughs> you start to realize like these, <laughs> these, these, these rules, man, it's like, this is some arbitrary stuff. And we got a question once again, what's our relationship to it? Why do we feel the need to uphold these rules? Right, because can you even, do you even feel comfortable with whoever made the rule, right? And so when you start to take this back into history and, and try to see where the rules actually came from, mm-hmm. a lot of times we're finding like there's, there's now this, this discussion uh, that's becoming more prevalent in just common conversation about, the foundation of policing being with mm-hmm. slave catching pat- patrols. And yeah. when you start to evaluate this institution based on its history, it makes you ask different questions of the institution. When exactly. we talk about the, the rules and we're, we're saying the rules generally, but one of the things I, I noticed just in our conversation is that we have different sets of rules depending upon where we are. And so yeah. what happens when our political rules and our religious rules come into conflict? What happens when our religious rules and our love rules come into conflict, right? The uh, attention that you and I have, have discussed before and maybe it's good for a future episode, right? Like we mm-hmm. center our um, understanding of how we should live our lives around the life of Jesus Christ and his example. Mm -hmm. But we have nothing in terms of an example of his sexual identity and how he operated in the world according to that unknown identity. We've got nothing there. We have no commentary on sexuality we, 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 we really have nothing to go off of. And so there's a tension that exists there. And so the, the onus upon us is not to just arbitrarily, you know, define the boundaries or define 
where one rule set applies and another one takes over because ultimately that's just arbitrary, which is to say there are no rules. So is it we have rules or, or not? Which, which, which one, right? Because if it's everybody deciding where the rules apply and where they don't, then there are no rules. Precisely. And it's that, that contradiction that I think is, is at the heart of so much of what we've discussed today. It's you encounter something that pushes against your constructed view and imagination, your inherited sense of how things are and are supposed to be. And you realize, oh, wait, everything does not conform to that. Why? And what do I do about that? How do I respond? How do I choose to live and to be and to do differently in light of that? And so, you know, I, and, I, and I think you're right. I think that, that that's, a great, that's a great conversation for down the road uh, because, you know, I'm, I'm a believer that we got to try as best we can to keep it 100 in all circumstances, which also means being willing to say, I don't know. And so many rules and regulations and structures are about a fear of what happens when the I don't know is honestly and openly communicated. Um, we say knowledge is power, uh, but in the, same, in the same hand, I think many people also believe ignorance is <laughs> the downfall and the destruction, that like it's not okay to not know. And if I don't have a resolved answer, like, and, 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 and to be honest, you know, like a conversation like this, I, I know there are folk in my life for whom this kind of conversation just sounds like, oh, well, it just sounds like you're hedging and like, you don't actually want to like stick by something. And, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a believer in this, right? Like I try to, I try to be as honest and forthright as I can and as best I can communicate where I stand right now and right here. Once again, I can't I can't guarantee that 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 won't uh, shift. Right. But as I as I tell folk, you know, I'm a I'm not an armchair philosopher. I'm a folding chair philosopher. And the distinction for me is I can fold up that chair and carry it somewhere else and sit down elsewhere if I need to, because sometimes because really that's what unlearning is like recognizing that hmm, something has to be revised. Something has to be shifted. Yeah, and that it's not just for us. That yeah. that the the willingness to reevaluate and unlearn doesn't only make us more free, but it gives an opportunity for those who, in the current structure, are less free than us to have access to a freedom that we all should have access to. I don't think that there is any. Uh, I would hope there are not many, let me say that. I would hope that there are not many people who would uh, you know, spout an ethic of wanting some folks to be less free than them. Like yeah. in, in this world that they would desire for these this group of people to be less free than them. Um, and in that case, I think particularly as we talk about black men, that that's not something that we would openly speak to because right so much of our identity in this country has been um just trying to push 
for having the same kind of freedom that other folks have. And yeah. so what sense would it make for us to desire that freedom and then deny it to other folks? And so in that way, we get to the place where there's this unquestioned uh, um, conflict between um, sticking to these established constructs for how we should operate in the world and being unwilling to evaluate them uh, and making sure that everybody gets access to this freedom. And so it's a call to responsibility. I think it is a responsibility for us and for anyone who occupies a particular uh, manner of privilege, but specifically as we talk about black men, it's, it's, it's a particular call. It's a specific call that we have to be about, if we're about freedom, then it is necessary for us to be about unlearning this devotion to these rules. Completely, because these rules are not going to save us. And when you say things like that, people are often quick to lean into whataboutism. Say, well, what about this person? Or what about that? I mean, well, you know, I went to school and I paid for it. You know, I collected, collected soda cans and, you know, put the money towards my tuition. Like, okay, everybody's got like a great origin story. Everybody has, you know, the, the, that very nice, uh, you know, everybody's got their up from slavery story. Everyone's got their bootstrap story, right? Lord. But the fact of the matter is, folks don't often stop to think about how you're raising all of these exceptions without questioning why the exceptional always has to be the rule for how we find our ways towards some measure of flourishing or freedom. Right. And, and I say that recognize it because I, I think both of us can relate to this, what it means to be elevated and raised and instrumentalized as exceptional black men. As exemplars for, well, if they did it, you know, why can't you do it? It's like, man, for a thousand and one reasons. <laughs> like there, there are there are factors in my success to this point in my life that are not repeatable things that other people can just do. That are not things I had any control over. Exactly. Stuff that like just by, you know, by happenstance, by chance, by timing. By grace. By, right. It, right stuff that I cannot explain and can't repeat. And I was fortunate enough to be, to have the particular gifts, talents, competencies, awareness in the time that I needed them. Right. And, and, and so like this, I, and, and so this notion, right. That like freedom is a function of needing to prove you deserve it. Like, no, that like, that's not the starting point. The starting point is freedom needs to be for all, or it's for no one. And for me, that, that, that notion reorients then how am I going to go about my life? How am I going to go about my work? How am I going to go about my relationships? Um, because I can't really desire freedom for all unless I'm willing to operate with an ethic of love. Like, how can you, and I, I'll, I'll, throw, I'll throw this in here. I used to teach high school and I, I taught mostly sophomores. And sophomores are an inch, at an interesting age, interesting stage of life. But what I came to understand was it is very difficult, if not impossible, to effectively educate children, not just teach, educate children 
if you don't have some love for them. Yeah. And those kids realize when you have contempt for them. So how much more do you think other people in the world realize <laughs> the contempt that operates when you are not invested in their freedom too? And even, you know, it, it, it's, I want to go back to you saying that we're either all free or none of us are free. And I want to, I want to really drive that point home because if you can decide who gets less freedom, then you establish a standard by which mm -hmm. a decision can be made on whether or not freedom can be available, which means yeah. your freedom is always going to be subject to that evaluation. Yeah. And so logically, we're either all free, all deserving of freedom, or none of us are because that is the rule that's being set up so this is a very all or nothing kind of setup and even in that there exists a contradiction right because that's a very binary way of looking at things but in 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 function it's an all or nothing we all get it or none of us do and so the, the then we get left with saying like, well who who doesn't deserve it Mm -hmm. If it comes down to a decision of the distribution of who is not deserving and why, and what is it about them that is so different from us that they wouldn't be allowed freedom and that doesn't then create a question of our own access to it. Absolutely. I mean, like, like we discussed last time, who's, whose lives matter? And who gets to decide whose life is worthy of ending? Who's, uh, who's suffering, whose pain is justified and whose is unthinkable, you know? And so that in so many ways, right? Like this is a part, this is a, a snapshot, a, a, a cross section of the long, long journeys we've been on thus far, but are still on. And I know for me, at least, you know, my, my hope is in the, you know, in these conversations, I'm finding my memory activated and I'm finding myself uh, looking, looking back and recalling and, I, and I'll be, and I'll be real with you. I can remember moments where as I look back, I cringe. Cause I'm like, mm, I wish I had known better or known differently then. Same. Cause I know, I know things I did and I said, um, things I did and said as a minister, things I, I did and said as a partner romantically, or just a partner in friendship, things I did or said as a leader, as a, as an educator, I'm like, man, you know, it's easy to get bogged down in all the stuff you did wrong, all the stuff you look back and say, oh man, I wouldn't do that again. But what I'm grateful for, once again, you know, that, that sense of grace that we extend each other. Um, you have to have a measure of grace and also a deep measure of love to say like, hey, no one's gonna do this perfectly. That's why it's practice. Um, but we also understand that like to, to practice means to leave ourselves vulnerable, to leave ourselves open and to say, 
okay, we ain't always going to get it right. But in order to get it right, I got to be open to correction. I got to be open to accountability. I got to be willing to say, I'm right in this with you. And we all are learning from each other. The necessity of practice. Yes, sir. And that we all have work to do. Mm -hmm. And we all have to get on uh, this unlearning journey. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Man, it's good to talk to you today, today, man. Man, likewise. And I hope all of y'all out there listening um, have enjoyed this conversation. It's, um, man, it's humbling to, to dig into your own histories and to be honest about where you got it wrong. Um, but I, I will always maintain I've learned more from my failures than I have from <laughs> my wins. Because the failures taught me how to reorient, how to readjust, and how to ultimately point myself in the right direction. Yeah. And we're going to have conversations that will be far ranging on a lot of different things. So this won't be the last time that we get into the, the origins or the inflection points, but hopefully this was a, a good uh, peek into uh, our own journeys and enough of uh, a nudge to invite you to uh, dig into yours. Uh, we'll catch you next time. This has been the Black Men Unlearning Podcast. See y'all. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Black Men Unlearning Podcast. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Black Men Unlearning and email us at blackmenunlearning at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our feed wherever you listen to podcasts.